I'm going to hand you over to Professor David Nutt, who will be able to tell you a bit about um, why he's here and what his background is. So, big round of applause for Professor David Nutt. So, I've already, it's already been pointed out to me that uh, you're no longer New Labour, but this was, a, this was a bit of a pun, okay? But I'm going to, my talk is going to focus on the mistakes New Labour made, uh, and I'm going to hopefully encourage you not to make the same ones. And then I'm going to explain to you how your opposition, uh, the Tory party, is getting it even more wrong. But just a few words about, uh, about me. I'm a psychiatrist. Uh, I work at Imperial College London now. I used to be in Bristol University. And uh, I work on drugs in the brain. And I do research largely around addiction and uh, depression. I do a lot of brain imaging. I've had four kids, and uh, they're all just about alive still, which is great. And, uh, and, uh, but the main reason, anyone, the reason I'm here is because I was uh, a government drugs advisor. For nine years, I chaired the scientific committee of the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs and did lots of interesting work there. I was so good at that that they promoted me to the full chair. And then I had some interesting run-ins, which I'll tell you about, which led to me being sacked by Alan Johnson. And um, that's how everyone knows about me. And that's actually was probably the most uh, useful thing that he did in his time as... Uh, as Home Secretary, because it started a debate about drugs, which is still running today. And we may, be still, we may not have won the debate or the argument, but at least we're having discussion in public. But I want to go back, actually, quite a bit further. I want to go back to here. Um, I don't know whether there's any... I guess I can't help you see it. But I'm sorry, the top's cut off. But um, how many of you remember this girl, Leah Betts? Yeah, and this was, this was an image of her. This, she's in uh, intensive care. She's dying in intensive care. And uh, she died on her, just after her 18th birthday. On her 18th birthday, she, uh, she took uh, two ecstasy tablets while she was getting her house ready for her 18th birthday. She took exactly the same dose of ecstasy that I gave to the novelist Lionel Shriver when we did the ecstasy study live. Lionel Shriver is still alive, and she came out of the scanner saying, that was pathetic, I want a bigger dose next time. But Leah's dead, and the difference between them is that Leah didn't understand the potential harms of ecstasy. She wasn't taking it in a medical setting. And when she started to feel anxious because of the palpitations that ecstasy gives you on the coming up phase, she thought she was dehydrated. And so she drank seven litres of water in the course of that afternoon and evening, and she died of uh, water poisoning. And um, you know, if she'd known uh, the, the safe measures to take, it wouldn't have happened. And uh, I can t t tell any, any of you, if you drink seven litres of water tonight before you go to bed, there's a good chance you'll die. So, because the water is actually considerably more toxic than people think. But the reason we know about her is, not, is because her death was promoted as uh, an evil event and post billboards were posted all over the country telling people to avoid the dangers of ecstasy. Uh, and the reason for that is because um, the drinks industry was very concerned that people were going to switch from alcohol to ecstasy. Now here's another death. This is a real death. This is a death from the drug. On the left-hand side, Gavin Britton, a young man, who died of alcohol poisoning in a, in a drinking game after a, an Exeter University golf match. And... Um, Three young people a week in this country died just of alcohol poisoning, often on their 18th or 19th or 21st birthdays, because people think it's fun to get them drunk, and they get so drunk they just die. 
But you don't see billboards with Gavin's face. None of you have ever seen Gavin's face. Most of the kids who die of alcohol poisoning you don't get in the newspaper at all. Because there's no incentive. You know, the drinks industry spends about a thousand times more on advertising drink than the Department of Health spends on warning you of the dangers of drink. And I thought this was a bit weird, really, because when you look at the absolute harms of these two drugs, uh, you come up with a rather different picture. So I wrote this paper called A Tale of Two E's. One is ecstasy and one is ethanol. And in fact, if you do an analysis of the comparative harms of ecstasy and ethanol, ecstasy is considerably less harmful. Uh, and um, I'll show you some of the evidence for that in a minute. Now, so that was, my, that, was, uh, that was a way of trying to apply logic and reason to the, the whole uh, debate. The problem with ecstasy, of course, is it's a drug that's recently been invented. And it's used by young people. And uh, alcohol is a drug that's used by young and old people. And the old people make the decisions. But then a, a couple of years later, I started thinking about the really challenging question. How do we compare the harms of drugs um, with other harms? I mean, if we're going to decide that we are concerned about people taking drugs because they're harmful, should there be some sensible comparators? And because I'm a, I'm a doctor, I specialize in people with injuries and, or abnormalities in their brain. I, uh, I used to treat people with, who'd had brain injury from surgery, tumors, and concussion. And uh, just before I wrote this paper, I, had a, I saw a patient who'd fallen off a horse, and uh, she smashed the front of her, her brain in. And she had a change of personality, as it often happens. Uh, to the point where she, you know, her husband had left her, she'd taken the kids, she'd lost her job. And she was so disinhibited and aggressive that she was um, unable to... She was actually being banned from shops in her village down in, down in Cornwall. And she came to see me if I, could, if I could help her deal with her uncontrolled behaviour. In fact, I prescribed amphetamine to her because that's actually often quite a good treatment for people with severe disinhibited behaviour. But it didn't really do much. It didn't, he couldn't restore the damage to her brain. But I got interested in horse riding harms because my daughters were riding horses. So I started researching it. And I discovered several things. I discovered that uh, horse riding is actually pretty dangerous. So I stopped my daughter's riding. Uh, and I, um, I also discovered it's addictive. And in fact, the best example of that is the, the Times colonist. Uh, I've forgotten her second name, which is called Melanie. She fell off a horse about eight years ago and broke her back in two places, broke her neck and her back. And now she rides a horse and she's in a frame, a metal frame. But she carries on riding the horse because she's addicted to horse riding. So I thought that's interesting, isn't it? You know, we, um, we don't stop people riding horses, but we stop people taking ecstasy. So I invented this syndrome, equine addiction syndrome. So we have ecstasy and equacy. And I wrote a paper, and, and this paper was... Uh, it was a kind of thought piece, a bit tongue-in-cheek, but it was a kind of provocative thought piece. It was, it was so compelling that my colleagues in Europe didn't understand it was a joke till they got to the second page. And some email saying, you bastard, you, we thought it was a new drug, and it's not. It's just horse riding. But it's not just horse riding. Horse riding is actually quite dangerous, as I will show you. So if you do a... I did an analysis of these two events. I did an analysis of horse riding versus ecstasy using the criteria that the ACMD used that I developed to assess the harms of drugs. And you can see there, I'm sorry, the, the projector's not very good, but there are some significant differences. If you ride horses and you, you, go, you do jumping, eventing, uh, 
you've got a chance of a serious accident one in every 350 hours. If you take ecstasy, you've got a chance of a harm in about one every 10,000 hours. And uh, if you care about greenhouse gases, there's a lot more methane from horses than from the manufacture of ecstasy. And as I like to say to the police, it's much easier to police horse riding because you'd never smuggle a horse into a club, could you? And this paper went down, it went down enormously badly with the Telegraph and the Mail. I was, I was attacked, I was attacked viciously. I was attacked by the, I got this wonderful letter from Horse and Hound saying, did I not know that horse riding cure, cured diabetes? Well, no, I didn't actually, know. It was, it, but it was bizarre, and in fact, um, I got a phone call from Jackie Smith, the Home Secretary at the time. Uh, any of you remember her? You can't see her. She always had a body, police bodyguard because she was so disliked. And um, <laughs> she rang me up the day she was going to be exposed for having chosen to use her sister's spare bedroom as her main residence so she could claim for her house in Birmingham as a... As a on expenses, and she rang me up and she said, what the hell are you doing? You know, you can't compare a legal activity with an illegal one. And I said, well, how do you decide whether one should be illegal or not? And there was that sort of, you know, that, you know what it's like, there was that sort of, you could hear the clogs going, what the f how do I answer this? And then she just shouted back, shouted, no, you can't do this. And I said, well, of course you've got to do it. Why would, why would you make anything illegal if, it's not, if you've got no comparators at home? And then she just put the phone down and, um, I thought, well, you know, I've never been very impressed with her. I thought maybe she's just not very smart. And then um, I started talking to other MPs, and, and a number of them said, the trouble is, David, we all think like that. When something's illegal, we stop thinking about it. We actually don't want to be told that we've made mistakes. We just want you to shut up. You know, if it's illegal, don't bother with it. And I thought, well, that's actually, that's actually wrong. Because there are people going to prison. I knew from research we'd done 10 years before that the, long, the drug which attracts the longest prison sentence is ecstasy. People get longer sentences for possessing ecstasy than they do for heroin or crack. And the reason for that is very straightforward, is that they're not addicts. So they're just having fun, and having fun is a very dangerous... You know, judges don't like young people having fun, so they put them in prison for long periods, because that sorts them out. Um, it's just, and I just thought, this is absurd. How, and it made me realize more than anything that if you cannot think rationally about illegal activities, don't make things illegal. Because otherwise, you will never think rationally about them. The next little tale I want to talk to you about was uh, actually came a bit earlier than that. It was my first exposure to working with the government um, on, in terms of drugs. And Tony Blair decided in about 1999 he was going to have a special commission, a cabinet office committee, to look at drugs and drug harms. And he gathered together a lot of experts, including myself. And I used to trudge up to London on the sort of 5.45 train every other Monday to sit in the cellars of Admiralty Arch working with these other experts to produce a report on the harms of drugs. And it was a radical concept because for the first time alcohol and tobacco were going to be considered as drugs and we produced what I thought was a really excellent report and, uh, and it, it basically characterized the relative harms of different drugs and came up with serious um, proposals to deal with the harms 
And then about three months later, the report was published. And we, uh, we opened the report and we said, well, where's the alcohol chapter? And the, the cabinet secretary said, well, we decided to remove it because the alcohol industry told us the science was wrong. He said, you know, please, you know, this is surreal. And yeah, the alcohol industry told us there are advantage, health benefits of alcohol as well as disbenefits. So we decided it was too challenging to deal with that, so we removed it. I think it was purely coincidental at the time that Bernie Eccleston was negotiating to carry on having alcohol advertising in Formula One. He was also supporting the Labour Party. But anyway, that's just a coincidence, I'm sure. The... The scale of that dishonesty is shown by this slide. So this slide shows 15 ways in which alcohol kills you. So as you go along the bottom here, there's an it's amount of alcohol you drink, and going up on the y-axis is the likelihood of dying of, from these different disorders. And you can see all these curves go up, right? They all go up except the top right-hand one. And that tight, top right-hand one is cardiovascular disease. In, uh, and that's, so -called, that's, that's the so-called J-shaped curve. You can see the orange, that's men. And you can see that there's a tiny little dip. For, for men, there's a tiny protective effect of alcohol on that measure. But all the other measures, for men and women, alcohol is actually very dangerous. And that was the argument they used. They said, this is the protective effect. And all the rest we ignore because we want a justification for not doing something about alcohol. Now, that turns out to be true. There is a protective effect, but it's, but it's swamped by all the other effects. But even if you, if you really care about it, if you're a, particularly if you're a middle-aged man and you really think that you want to capitalize on this protective effect and not worry about your liver or anything else, well, the amount you've got to drink, the optimal consumption of alcohol to get that protective effect is a half a glass of wine. Small glass, 50 mils, which you can't buy anyway. So when you go out tonight, if you're going to a pub or, after, or anywhere else, and you're going to drink, I suggest that you get a unit of alcohol and three straws and share it with two of your friends. That way you get the right amount of alcohol and get to meet people. And... <laughs> I don't know if any of you know this woman. She's very impressive. She used to be on the advisory council. She's a very uh, forward-thinking, very intelligent woman, uh, Ruth Runciman, and she chaired the committee that I served on back in, we published in 2000, this report, the first systematic review of the drug laws that had been done in Britain since the Misuse of Drugs Act came out in 1971. And it was a really impressive piece of work. We spent two years working on it. And uh, it's one of the things I'm most proud of. It was really, as I say, a, a seminal discussion of drugs and drug harms and, what, and the drug laws. And these are the recommendations we made. We recommended that um, we should move ecstasy from class A to class B. We should transfer LSD from class A to class B. We should move the cannabinoids from class A to class C, because they used to be in class A. We should read, move buprenorphine up, and we should put herbal cannabis down from B to C. So, you know, these were all sensible evidence-based recommendations. And uh, when we published this uh, report, we had a press conference, and the media criticized us. They said we hadn't gone far enough. They said this is pathetic. We should have been more radical. We should have done things like liberalize or legalize drugs. And we said, well, no, we think this is a, these will be sensible, rational approaches. You have to realize at that point, 
never in the history of the Misuse of Drugs Act had a drug ever been downgraded. So this was actually quite a radical suggestion. But, anyway, but the, press, the press at the time said, no, no, God, it's pathetic, do more. I don't know why they said that, and I also don't know why they changed their views, but at least one person was sympathetic, and that was Blunkett. And Blunkett became Home Secretary, and he said, yeah, okay, those are interesting suggestions. Let's start by looking at the question of cannabis. So he asked the Advisory Council to review cannabis in the light of the Runciman report. The Advisory Council came to the same conclusions. We should move all cannabis products from class A and B to class C. And, uh, and that was the first time a drug had ever been recommended to be downgraded. And Blunkett said, fine. And there was a discussion in Parliament, and it went through. And then all hell broke loose. The month before the reclassification, there was daily vitriol from the newspapers that you know and hate, you know, the Telegraph and the Mail and the Express and the Sun, telling the world, or telling everyone, the world was going to end if we did this. And they really tried to block it. So two years before, they were saying we wouldn't have gone far enough. As soon as we went anywhere, they went hysterical. I don't know why that happened. I really don't know. I don't know if any of you do. But it was huge media pressure. And in the end, in the end, that happened. In the end, it was downgraded. But they kept on fighting and fighting and fighting to have it regraded. And it was regraded eventually. It was regraded by this man. Do you remember him? Gordon Brown. And um, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's not in his memoirs. Um, but the, um, you, I mean, you, how many of you remember Gordon Brown? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Some of the guys at the back don't, because yeah, uh, other girls. Uh, the, you know, he, be, he, he became prime minister when, when Blair stepped down. Blair stepped down because there was a lot of antipathy to him, and um, particularly in relation to the war in Iraq. And we all thought Gordon Brown would actually, having been such a brilliant chancellor, would make a brilliant um, prime minister. And when Brown took over, obviously he wasn't elected, and there was a huge slew of public support. People thought, great, at last, you know, we, we've got rid of Blair, we've now got a decent prime minister. And people said, but he's not got a mandate, so go to the people, have an election. But Brown is a very, very, very anxious man. And uh, he didn't want to go to the country until he was sure he was going to win. And the longer he waited, the more clear it was that he wasn't going to win. Because Cameron, having been a sort of wet-behind-the-ears young Tory, suddenly was learning the skills of becoming a, a, a prime minister in waiting. So Brown began to get very twitched when the 2010 election started, came uh, into the, onto his horizon. And uh, he couldn't do what Blair had done. I mean, credit to Brown, he'd actually fallen out with Murdoch, whereas Blair had got into bed with Murdoch. And um, so Brown couldn't go back and ask the Sun to support him. So he had to find some other newspaper with wide readership that wasn't typically Labour supporting. So he had an, an elite, an, what is actually an illegal, certainly it breaches the ministerial code. He had a meeting, off the record meeting, with the editor of the Daily Mail, Paul Dacre. And he asked the Daily Mail to support him in the 2010 election. Or they alleged anyway, because no, the meeting didn't, of course, happen and no notes were taken, but there were people there who said, this is what happened. And um, apparently Brown said, would you support Labour in the next election? Kind of bizarre thing to ask of a, a newspaper that supported the Nazis, but you know, he was desperate. And, um, <laughs> And Dacre said, yeah, we'll support you in the election if you do three things. 
reduce the top rate of income tax from 50 to 45. Check. That happened within a few weeks. Put a cap on immigration at 200,000 a year. That happened. And reclassify cannabis. And, uh, and we, of course, none of us knew this was happening, but what we did notice was that Gordon Brown was telling people about the dangers of cannabis. And we thought, why, is it, why is he talking about cannabis? We know what's going on. And, we, and it wasn't until several years after the election it came out that he'd done this deal. And he started campaigning to get cannabis regraded from C to B. And eventually it was. But also at this time, the Labour Party decided to have a policy of criminalizing cannabis users to appease the right-wing press. And we eventually managed to ratchet up. So we've got a million young people with criminal records for cannabis possession. And those records are actually very detrimental to their lives. They're much more detrimental to their life than using cannabis. Because if you've got a criminal record for cannabis possession, you can't get a job in teaching or the civil service or the police or the army. So you become an underclass. And we've created this enormous underclass, particularly in London. And the other thing, of course, about that, that deal with the mail was that did Dacre support him in the election? No. So he sold the soul of the Labour Party for a, a failed um, attempt at support. I mean, it was such awful judgment. And then I got sacked. So this is the sacking. This is my sacking. There's, uh, there's Alan Johnson's hand over my mouth, dragging me out of my position as chair of the council. And I was sacked because, uh, well, it's summed up there, if you can see them, the scales of justice on the bottom left. And I was saying basically that beer and fags were actually much more harmful to the British people than whatever those strange green chemicals are in the other side of the scales of justice. And I was saying that cannabis, you can see the book of cannabis falling from my grasp, that cannabis was actually less harmful than alcohol and tobacco. And that was flatly, you know, in contradiction to government policy, which was that alcohol was a good thing and we needed money from the drinks industry. Now, at the time, I was pretty certain I was right. But now I know I was right because no other, no lesser authority than this man told us I was right. This is <laughs> President Obama telling the world that marijuana is no more dangerous than alcohol. And that is why the Drug Enforcement Agency do not enforce the federal anti-cannabis laws in America in the states which have medical marijuana, which is 28 states, because he's, he doesn't want a civil war. He, so cannabis is illegal under federal law, it's legal under state law. Eight states, now it's legal, as a, it's not just a medicine. In 28 states it's a medicine, in eight states it's actually just illegal. You can actually buy it, it's uh, illegal to anyone. And the feds were attacking uh, cannabis pharmacies and destroying them uh, under federal law. And Obama said, this is stupid. We're not going to do this. It's medicine. People want it as a medicine. You're not going to enforce federal law. We don't know if Cousins is going to do the same. It's a bit worrying now because we've got this peculiar sort of uh, group of uh, giant infants running America, but things might change. But at that time, that was an amazing statement. That's the first time in the history of the world an American president has told the truth about drugs. And that has huge implications because America controls international drug policy. Every law we've ever made about drugs, with the exception of the new one, the Psychoactive Substances Act, we've always done what the Americans have told us. Not necessarily immediately, but within 10 years. We've always done what they said. They don't really have that authority anymore. I want to talk about a few other conceptual points before I 
move into the present day. I mean, one of the things I discovered, it was quite chilling when I really discovered this, was that neither our Misuse of Drugs Act nor the United Nations Conventions, which our Drugs Act is supposed to mimic, actually says what a drug is. And that's really worrying. Because it means that people can make it up. Or politicians can look for sources of knowledge about what a drug is that may not be actually honest. So I made up my own definition of what a drug is. This is it. A drug is something a politician won't choose but now regrets. Um, so Jackie Smith, when she became Home Secretary, was asked the standard question, have you ever taken drugs, Jackie? And instead of telling the truth, was says, yes, but only half a bottle of Chardonnay a night, except at weekends. She said, I smoke cannabis, but I didn't enjoy. Now at that time, the Home Secretary was also the head of the judiciary. We split the, split the, um, the departments now. And uh, she should have known that not enjoying a drug is no defense in law. So for those of you at the back there, just be warned, right? The police don't care whether you enjoy it or not. And then David Cameron said when he became head of the Tory party, I did things when young, I shouldn't have. We all did. Um, that's called the Eton We, which is the Tory front bench, became the Tory front bench. And um, the great thing about the Conservatives is that they only do drugs which begin with the same letter as the Conservative party. So we know for David it was cannabis and cocaine, and we think Crystal probably hadn't got to Oxford by then, but it probably is then now. So those are the kind of arbitrary uh, distinctions that people make between um, drugs and alcohol. Of course, there are other pressures here. The drinks industry has its own definition of, of what a drug is. It's something that isn't alcohol. is not a drug, even. And it's remarkable. I'm, I, I mean, I... I'm going to talk to the young people at the back here. You go home and speak to your mother or your granny tonight and say, especially granny, say, Granny, I've just been to this talk by this crazy guy called Nut. And she'll say, Well, that's your own fault. And you say, No, Granny, seriously. He asked this question Do you think alcohol is a drug? And she'll say, Don't be stupid. Why are you asking? Why have you been smoking? And you, know, you say, No, seriously, Granny, is alcohol a drug? She says, Of course it's not a drug. And you say, Well, why do you take it then? And if you take a lot of it, you get drunk and intoxicated. You might have a hanger, it might fall over. How can it not be a drug? And I bet you 95% of grannies will say, if it was a drug, it would be illegal. And this illegality paradox has been preyed on by the drinks industry so efficiently. One view you can take of the whole drugs legislation is that over the last century, the drinks industry has eliminated all competition. So in the 1880s, you could go down your corner shop and you could buy tincture of cannabis, tincture of heroin, tincture of cocaine, and you could buy alcohol. Now, you can just buy alcohol. The drinks industry has systematically eliminated all that competition over the last hundred years, really efficiently. What do I say? Well, I say a drug is a chemical which, when taken, produces physiological changes, changes in body functions. And of course, when we're talking about controlling drugs, one would presume, I mean, all you guys would presume, that this got something to do with harms. I mean, why would you control a drug if it wasn't harmful? Well, apart from because the drinks industry wants you to do. So the question is, what are the harms of drugs and how we should evaluate them and how we should compare them? Well, I guess most of us would probably accept that the most harmful effect of a drug is death. Yes, most of us. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of Tories who don't believe this. They think dead people are good because they would vote Labour if they hadn't taken drugs. But... But anyway, let's, most of us think that actually staying alive is a good thing. 
So let's look at deaths. So tobacco, 80,000 premature deaths a year. Half of all smokers die of a smoking-related disorder. Those are called good deaths by economists because smokers pay a huge amount of tax on their tobacco and then they die before they draw their pensions. So, so that's good. Uh, alcohol deaths are called bad deaths because they kill young people as well as old people. So they impair productivity of the nation. So there's 28,000 premature deaths from alcohol. Opiates. See the opiate curve? Went right off the scale last year. 1,800 opiate deaths, way more than we've ever had before. I, I left it off the scale so you could see how much it changed. Uh, that's because we don't treat opiate addicts anymore, because we think it's a lifestyle choice, not an illness. And last year, cocaine exceeded paracetamol for the first time. We had the highest number of cocaine deaths last year. Okay, so those are deaths. And um, I'm going to focus a bit more on alcohol deaths, because alcohol deaths are the ones that are particularly problematic because they're often young people. And this is a very chilling statistic. Alcohol now is the leading cause of death in men under the age of 50. It's overtaken suicide, cancer, and road traffic accidents. And because women are now drinking more than men, because women are actually more successful than men, they're earning more, young women are drinking more than young men, it'll be the leading cause of death in women under the age of 50 within the next couple of years. So we have a tsunami of alcohol-related deaths because we are consuming more than we should but we don't even admit it. And we don't even admit it when we have data that actually proves this. And this is perhaps the most chilling graph of all. So this graph shows what we call standardized mortality rates. The government started collecting data in 1970 when I started in medicine. And they wanted data to let us know how the health service was doing. You look at the likelihood of dying from any of those different disorders, diabetes, blood disorders, road traffic accidents, cancer, anything, any color you like except red, and you can see they've all gone down. In the last 45 years, mortality from these disorders has gone down. Heart disease has halved in terms of the likelihood of dying. And that's exactly what you'd expect, because medicine's got better, and actually we're healthier. We've got clean air, etc. we've got seatbelts, you know, that's what, you collect this data to show that you're doing the right thing. Isn't it strange that liver deaths went in the opposite direction from the very beginning? You know, 10 years they'd gone up and doubled, 20 years they doubled. What did the government do then when they realized that they were facing this massive rise in liver deaths, 80% of which are due to alcohol? What did they do? They let supermarkets sell it and corner shops sell it. So then there was another doubling in the next 10 years. So we've, done, we, we've seen alcohol kill people. And we've monitored it very carefully. And we've made exactly the wrong policy decisions continuously. Because the drinks industry has such influence. At least half of all MPs get some kind of kickback from the drinks industry. When you put all that data together, you can do a sophisticated analysis on the harms of drugs to the user, and that's the scale of the blue bar, and the red bar are the harms of the drugs to society. And when we did this, we published this in The Lancet in 2010, and this was the evidence on which I got sacked, because alcohol is more harmful than cannabis. Ah, huh? you can see that. Fact. That's the most sophisticated analysis of drug harms has ever been done. And it shows that alcohol is the most harmful drug in the UK because of the size of the red bar. The red bar is the harms that alcohol does to other people, like you, who don't drink so much. And the reason alcohol is so harmful to other people is because it's involved in 
at least half of road traffic accidents. He's involved in probably three quarters of domestic violence and child sexual abuse. It costs six and a half billion pounds a year just to police drunkenness in our streets. Three and a half billion pounds a year to deal with the health harm. So alcohol, because it's so prevalent, is very, very costly. It's not the most harmful drug to the user. The blue bar is the indication of harm to the user. The next three bars along, heroin, crack and crystal, they're much more harmful to the user than alcohol, but there's much less use. So in, ter in terms of the cost to UK society, alcohol is the most harmful drug. And the drugs that the media get hysterical about and politicians get hysterical about, down on the right-hand side here, mephedrone, NSD, ecstasy, mushrooms, they don't really cause any harm to anyone. The other thing that came out of this analysis was that there's actually no relationship whatsoever between the harms of a drug and whether it's controlled or not. And if it's controlled, what class it's controlled under. So that means the law is wrong. The law is meant to be an evidence-based law. The UN conventions are meant to be evidence-based. And they're both wrong. And a wrong law has several implications. It's immoral, because it's punishing people for things which they shouldn't be punished for. And uh, it's also, I think it's illegal, but, but it's actually impossible to challenge uh, that under some kind of judicial review because government, the parliament is, is, is predominant there. But it is extremely worrying that we've had drug laws now for pushing 50 years, which are actually so out of kilter with the truth about the harms of drugs. And in fact, what's even more chilling is the fact that our drug laws, as I said, are basically... They're, they're copied from the Americans. And the American drug laws are based simply on political expediency. So this is a quote from John Ehrlichman, who coordinated the, the Nixon campaign, election campaign in 1968. And he said this. So he, this is when the war on drugs started. Nixon said, drugs are the greatest enemy to America. And Ehrlichman said this. The Nixon 68 campaign had two enemies the anti-war, anti-Vietnam war left, and black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt these communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. So that's uh, why we are concerned about drugs, because it's expedient to allow us to attack our political opponent. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. As the British government did when it cracked down on cannabis, as I've pointed out. This was a political expediency by New Labour in order to show to the world that Labour was harder on drugs than the Tories. Here's Alan. Is this is me being sacked. This is, I'm the guy with the moustache in the spliff there. The other scientists there are the ones who resigned when I was sacked. Cannabis is an enormously useful political tool. And Labour bought into that in a way which is actually embarrassing for those of you who are Labour supporters because it was so blatantly political and dishonest. Let's look a little bit at what's gone on with cannabis. So these are, this is what happened with cannabis. This is the number of users of cannabis in this country year on year going back to 1970 when we started collecting that data on on damage from different 
illness systems. We started collecting data on cannabis. And although the, you've lost the top of the slide, the bottom line is there's a 20-fold increase in the number of people using cannabis in the last 40 years. 20-fold increase in numbers, which probably means 40 to 100 times increase in the amount used. So if cannabis was harmful, like alcohol, we might see some deaths, but there's no deaths. So how do you justify keeping cannabis illegal when you know, up to half the population is using it? Well, what you do is you start creating hysteria about driving and about skunk and about schizophrenia. And uh, these are the data on schizophrenia. This is the MRC data on schizophrenia. So a 20-fold increase in the users of cannabis, no increase in schizophrenia or psychosis anywhere. In fact, if anything, they're going down. So we know that the fears are wrong but we still utilize them because it helps, supposedly helps help Labour stay in power. And the price of that, of course, is this racist policy where you have four times as much likelihood of getting a criminal conviction if you're black or ethnic minority than if you're white possessing cannabis. Actually, not quite as bad a ratio as in America. In America, it's eight to one. Here, it's only four to one. But we have this extremely racist policy which completely undermines the confidence that many ethnic minorities groups have in, in the law. They're arrested for possessing a drug, which is going to do them less harm than the alcohol that the policeman who's arresting them is going to drink that night. And they know it. The police know it. Everyone knows it's a lie, it's, but people pursue it because they're too scared to stand up to some of the members of the press. And it's changed rather a lot. A hundred years ago, the most powerful woman in the world wrote eulogies about the benefits of cannabis medicine for period pains and the pains of childbirth. Her, um, her physician thought cannabis was a really powerful medicine. It's been a medicine for 4,000 years. It was a medicine in Britain until 1971, when eventually we succumbed to a US pressure to stop it being a medicine. They'd banned it as a medicine back in the 30s. And, and this is, I think, the only time we've ever actually had a, a parliamentary debate which removed a medicine from the pharmacopoeia. It's kind of absurd that MPs could even debate something like that, but they did. And it was removed because, as I say, the Americans wanted it removed. Because they thought by getting rid of it as a medicine, they stopped it being used. So remember, in 1971, half a million users. 40 years later, 20 million users. That tells you that prohibition doesn't work. This is where we are now. We've gone from Queen Victoria finding it useful to this. We have this situation where we are criminalizing people who are in wheelchairs with multiple sclerosis. The only relief they get is from cannabis. The police break their door down, or her door down, three times on dawn raids. Why do they do that? Well, they get overtime, they can dress up like military, they can make doors break. She's in a wheelchair, if she pressed the bell, she'd let them in. She can jump out the window and run away. But they don't get, the, you know, it's not so much fun, is it? So, there is this issue, you know, we, we've created, once you create a war, people then behave like they're soldiers. If she gets convicted once more, she must go to prison. So her freedom is in the hands of the police. She carries on using cannabis because it's the only thing that gives her benefit. Why, why don't we allow her to have cannabis if it's the only thing that helps her? We now, I think we now have 18 countries in the world that have made cannabis and medicine. Why do we hold out against it? Because the Daily Mail won't let us have a proper debate. And it's not just the Daily Mail. The Sun also has some peculiar attitudes to drugs. 
I love you. I, I think I'm glad you like that one. Yes. I, I, I like. We have a Croatian student here, and yeah, you might think, is that English? And I say, no, it's not English. That's Sunnish. Um, <laughs> the Sun has spent the last 30 years trying to get drugs banned, uh, with considerable success, and they got methadone banned, based on those kind of stories, which are completely fictitious. And the police are also um, complicit in this. And this is, I want to tell you another story. I was, um, I did a short interview with CNN when Mephadrome was reaching its peak. This is MCAT Meow Meow. Some weren't determined to get it banned because it was legal. And uh, CNN rang me one day and said, where's Scunthorpe? <laughs> I said, well, that's not a question I've ever been asked before, but why do you want to get a Scunthorpe? And they said, because the Humberside police have called an international press conference to tell the world that they believe two young men have died from taking Meow Meow. I said, that's kind of unlikely. I just read the Israeli government report. It was an Israeli drug. They had 450,000 regular users of Meow Meow, and no one had ever died. But if you want to go to Scunthorpe, drive up the M1 for four hours and turn right. <clears throat> I don't know if they made it, but if they got there, they'd have heard this. This guy's dad was dragged out by the police to tell, warn people off using this drug, even though there was no evidence he touched the drug, even though there was no evidence the drug had harmed him. And his dad said this, I don't want him to be labelled a druggie, because he wasn't. He was on, just on a night out with friends enjoying himself, a normal, caring, hard-working lad. Absolutely true. Every word in that statement in red is true, except for one. He was a druggie. He was an alcohol druggie. Him and his mate had been drinking for about seven hours on a Sunday night, and they were so drunk that when they wandered off into town to get more drugs, they took the opiate, methadone, instead of mephedrone. And that's what killed them. Now, the Humberside police knew that, almost certainly. But if you ring up CNN and say, we've had two deaths from alcohol and opiates, they'll just say, oh really, we were eight in Detroit last night, so why would we bother? But if you say a scary new drug with a name like a cat has killed someone, people will travel hundreds of miles just to be the first to hear it. And in fact, they hadn't taken, they hadn't taken methadrone. No one died from methadrone before it got banned. It got banned because the election was coming up and the Sun wanted it banned. Now you might say, well, okay, you know, this is all fire, so, you know, okay, it might not be as dangerous as other drugs, but can there be any harm from banning a drug? I mean, you know, really, why are you going on about this? Well, I'm going on about this because if you don't think sensibly about drugs, if you ban everything, people just take the strongest drug they can get. If everything's illegal, if everything's class A, why should people bother to wonder, you know, why should they even consider what they're taking? Why don't they just use the most potent drugs? And in fact, mephedrone is a wonderful, it's a unique natural experiment. It turns up in Britain in 2008. It's legal, it's sold. One gram was sold, you know, for say six quid. It's perfectly clean, perfectly pure. You take a gram and you don't die. It became hugely popular. It became so popular that people switched from cocaine and from amphetamines to mephedrone. And as they switched, they stopped dying. So these are death rates. These are death rates from black cocaine, red amphetamines. <coughs> you see, they've risen, particularly the cocaine deaths, have risen enormously over the previous decade. 
And then the methadrone comes along, and people stop dying from cocaine because they're not using cocaine anymore. They're using methadrone, and it doesn't, it's much less toxic. So for two years, cocaine deaths fall. We probably save three or 400 lives from cocaine deaths because people switch. Then you ban methadrone, and then after a year, because of stockpiling, cocaine deaths rise. Now they've reached the highest level ever. So that is proof that people aren't stupid. If you give people a safe, legal alternative to cocaine, they won't die of taking cocaine, or a few of them are. But to talk about that in public is, is, is it's like, you know, uh, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like saying you're a pedophile, you know, because you're actually, it's a, it's, to, to actually try to have a dialogue with the media about a rational approach providing less harmful drugs is impossible because all, the only attitude we have in this government, the current government, is even worse. All they care about is saying no. And I want to introduce you now to truly the most terrifying facet of this of all, because this is now the present. This is a coroner's report four months ago. He died a year before, but we're very slow in doing coroners here. This is a young lad called Robert. He goes out to score some cannabis from his dealer in Maidstone. The dealer says, I got some good E. Would you like some E? And he says, yeah, I'll take that too. Goes home, he takes the E. But it's not E, it's fentanyl, and he's dead. And we now have an epidemic of fentanyl deaths because it's extremely cheap to make by actually being very hard on the production of morphine in India. We don't want to have um, opium. We've actually allowed the black market now to make, encourage the black market to make these cheaper fentanyls. And it's killing people. And that big rise in opiate deaths last year we discovered probably wasn't heroin. It was probably a whole range of fentanyls that we didn't even know existed. And so now we're reanalyzing, the government's reanalyzing all the deaths from opiates last year. And it'll probably be like the States, probably half of them would be due to fentanyls. This is 50 times more potent than heroin. There are versions of fentanyl which are a thousand times more potent. You can't even weigh it out in small enough quantities to know whether it won't kill you. And we've created this horrible market now and this terrible death uh, drug, be, drug, set of drugs because we are so obsessed with banning things. We don't allow people access to something that's less harmful. And now it gets worse. So this is, a, this is truly the most surreal piece of legislation in the history of the world. 26th of May, 2016, the Psychoactive Substances Act came into force. It bans any substance that works on the brain, whether it exists today, or whatever exists in the future, with the exception of three substances, alcohol, tobacco, and caffeine. Any other psychoactive substance is de facto illegal. And when I talk to people from other countries, they say, you know, you can't be serious. You can't ban things that don't exist. You say, yes, you can. Now, the only substance you can take to change the way you feel about the world is alcohol. The drinks industry is one, okay, that's it. It's, it's alcohol or nothing now. So drugs that might make you cleverer, or more sociable, or more relaxed, or even votory. Now there's no drug that strong, but you know that. But anything that changes your brain is illegal, de facto, even if it's, perfect, even if it's actually better than, it increases health, it's illegal because it works on the brain simply because it's psychoactive. How? How have we got into this situation? This is where the sun, again, has played 
its enormous role. And it's, a lot of it is focused on nitrous oxide. It's become the new whipping boy. People hate young men, young people using nitrous oxide. And they really hate footballers using nitrous oxide. Now, headlines saying footballer uses laughing gas, well, people would just laugh at it, wouldn't they? So they couldn't do that, so they had to change the name. They changed the name from laughing gas to hippie crack. And that is guaranteed to scare any person over the age of 50. You can remember the hippies. Imagine a hippie on crack, tie-dyes, and they're jumping around all night on crack. Now, that's outrageous, but this is, this, there's nothing, I mean, no self-respecting hippie would remotely want to use nitrous oxide, but, but the fact is the newspapers can make anything up they like. So they said, it's hippie crack, scaring people. I feel quite strongly about this, as you've probably gathered, because nitrous oxide is a British drug. It was invented by this man, president of the Royal Society. He used it recreationally because he thought it was fun and interesting, as well as for science. It turned into an anaesthetic in over 200 years. I don't think there'd been any deaths except suicide. Millions of women have used it for childbirth. I had it last year when I broke my wrist. You know, it's, a, it's an anaesthetic. It gives you, makes you a bit woozy. It's almost completely innocuous. The Sun didn't even read it. They, they, they had an article when Prince Harry used it, but, you know, that's what you expect of him. But a soccer player, no, that's very different. So why do soccer players use nitrous oxide? Why, what is the comparative harm of nitrous oxide? Well, we reckon there might be one or two deaths a year from inhaling balloons, etc. Alcohol, 5,000 deaths a year. Other harms are very low. Why, do, why would you ban nitrous oxide? It's because soccer players are not stupid. Soccer players realize that if they get drunk, it'll take them tw tw 10 to 20 hours for the hangover to pass. If they have a get high on nitrous oxide, it'll be, a, it'll be over in about two minutes. So there's Raheem Sterling. This is the son trying to ban nitrous oxide because these footballers are bad boys. This is Luke Shaw, who's another footballer. He's lying on the, the, coming off the pitch in Basel, having his leg broken in two places. And the commentators say, oh, he's been given oxygen. Well, he's not been given oxygen because he's at sea level. He's been, he's, been, he's been given nitrous oxide. But people won't sell. They won't say nitrous oxide has value to deaden the pain in his leg because they want to attack nitrous oxide. I mean, this, is, this dishonesty permeate. And um, now it's illegal in this country. And there are a huge number of prosecutions which I'm trying to defend people from for possessing. And it's the easiest... It's even easier to find some of nitrous oxide than cannabis because you see the balloons and you hear the, the whippets chinking. So that it's the easiest conviction the police can make. And why have we got there? Well, I just want to remind you, this woman once was the chairman of the Tory party. There you are. And I remember as she said this, I remember thinking there's something wrong in that statement. We must escape the image of being the nasty party. I mean, what's wrong with that statement? And then I realized it's the word image. She's not saying we've got to stop being nasty. She's saying we've got to stop people knowing we're nasty. And that's what she was then, her little smug smile. And she was successful. People started to believe in the, the new Tories, didn't they? This is what she says now. I'm going to stop you having fun with nitrous oxide, even if it's harmless. Because that's what it's about. This is a law to stop people having safe fun. In fact, as the daughter of the church, this was what she really means. Thou shalt have no other drug but me, which is alcohol. <laughs> Forever and ever, amen. And of course, the Tories actually find nitrous oxide rather trivial, really, because 
The Bullingdon Club, these guys who were, uh, there's, uh, there's our, uh, a young version of Cameron in the, in the Bullingdon Club, and these guys went out on amazing drinking binges fueled by cocaine to keep them awake long enough to drink that much. And Cameron's saying, the proles, that's you, are complaining we're going to ban nitrous oxide. And our future prime minister, oh, Boris, is saying, let us snort coke, it was good enough for us. Yes. You know, and uh, that's the attitude. These people, um, at least some of them, managed to stop using their drugs when they left Oxford, and, uh, and they assume everyone else can afford coke and afford their outfits. But in fact, a lot of people would just prefer nitrous oxide to alcohol. And I think this is the worst law ever. It's immoral because it pushes people to use alcohol. It increases harms and deaths because uh, all drugs will be on the black market. It's based on a lie about harms. It bans something safe like nitrous oxide. It's anti-scientific. When they first brought the bill in, they didn't mention research. We had to force them to accept that it was allowable to use these drugs for research. Because the Home Office doesn't care about research, it just cares about banning things. And you've got to go back a long way to find a drug, uh, uh, sorry, to find a law which has less moral, uh, more moral in, um, dishonesty than this one. In fact, you've got to go back to the realm of Elizabeth I when the uh, Act of Supremacy basically said that you've got to be a, a Protestant or an Anglican here rather than a Catholic. That was a moral law. This is a moral law, and it's outrageous. It also means that we're not able to develop innovative new treatments for alcohol here. We could replace alcohol with a safe alternative, but investors won't invest in this country because they say, well, is it psychoactive? And you say, probably. And they say, well, is it illegal? And you say, we don't know, it had to go to court. And they say, well, I'm not going to put a million pounds in just in case a jury decides it's psychoactive. So actually, it's stopping innovative research here. It's not stopping us, because we're going to do it in other countries that are more rational, like China. But it is very problematic for British innovation. And I want to finish. So this is my plea to you as rational members of the Labour Party. The Labour Party should now accept it's, it's really done extraordinarily badly by trying to ape what the Tories say about drugs. And you, the Labour Party should start developing policies which are actually honest, evidence-based. They should review all the drug laws. We need a Royal Commission. They should put medicines, medicines like psilocybin, cannabis, MDMA, they should be put back in medicines. They've been taken out, they were taken out of medicines, they should be put back. We should decriminalise the personal possession of all drugs because criminal records do more harm to people than the drug use. We should have testing systems. We will not stop. The only way we can stop this massive rise in fentanyl deaths is if we have testing and we have safe injecting rooms so that people, when they collapse with fentanyls, can be resurrected with naloxone. And we should agree with what the Lib Dems, at least the Lib Dems, are the balls to say we should legalize cannabis. And since this is your, presumably your, I hope some of you still believe in him, I mean, he's one of the founders, or the philosophical founders of the Labour Party, George Bernard Shaw, and he said, those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. And, I, you know, I think the Labour Party does need to change its mind on drugs and actually face up to the realities of the world and put science first. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to leave it 22, so if you kick off quickly. Yes. Thank you very much for making a point for decriminalisation of drugs. 
My only question is, you mentioned the media and bold issues. What's the position of the wider medical profession? Yeah, it's a really good point. Last week, the Royal College of Physicians, I mean, one of the most august traditional bodies, so august and traditional that I resigned from them because they were just so useless, have actually come out in favour of decriminalisation. They've come out in support of the, um, the Royal Society of Public Health report two years ago. I'm now trying to get the Royal College of Psychiatrists, which I'm still a member of, I might resign though if they don't do it, to support that. The medical profession is, understands that you don't solve the drug problem by giving the problem to the police. Drug problems are health problems. In ev almost every other country in the world, drugs are dealt with under health, and they do better than we do. So yeah, so we're beginning, I think the medics are beginning to wisen up to this. And the more fentanyl deaths we have, the more they will wise up. There's an argument that when people talk about something and they set their gender, and often you mentioned about the language. Yeah, yeah. So like often people are ecstasy are confused with MDMA, ecstasy can be anything really, you know, in terms of, mm. uh, and how, how, how do we tackle kind of the, the language problem, the vocabulary that's used? Because often that blurring is conscious, it's deliberate. It's deliberate. Well, we have to eliminate those newspapers. <laughs> and if Leveson 2 happens, they will go. They will be, if Leveson 2 must happen, if Leveson 2 doesn't happen, they will carry on. But if Leveson 2 happens, I think a lot of, a lot of those guys will be in prison. Because, so, yeah, I mean, some of the editors are clearly corrupt. I mean, yeah, we all know that. I mean, it's a, it's a travesty of the justice system that they got off last time. Mm -hmm. What are the effects of uh, drugs on the development, the brain development of uh, teenagers? Yeah, well, I, we don't know very much about that. We, we know that when the younger people are, when they start to use drugs, so people who start to smoke tobacco before the age of 10 have got massively increased levels of the use of all drugs. People who start to drink before the age of about 13 have got massively high levels of alcoholism. We don't know whether that's because their brains are damaged by the drugs or whether they've just got the propensity why would you start smoking at eight if you i mean there may be propensities to use drugs so it's a very complicated question i mean you know and personally i would prefer no one to use drugs till they go to university even alcohol or tobacco i mean that would be the great way when you're actually mature enough and adult enough to make a decision very difficult to impose and it would actually probably have a lot of negative consequences if we tried to but i think we should at the very least educate people to try to minimize drug use until they've done their a levels at the back. Um, why do you advocate for instead of legalisation? Yeah, well, legalisation is a very complicated term. It, what do you mean by legalisation? Well, as in uh, a legal regulated drug market. Okay, so a lot of people don't even know what you're talking about there. People think legalisation means an open market, you know, people can sell anything to anyone in supermarkets. But I think the difference is that... No, no, I understand what the difference is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and I'm totally in favour of regulated markets. Um, decriminalization is something we've proven, it's been proven to work. A regulated market is the next step. It's more adventurous, it's more challenging. No one's ever done it apart from um, cannabis in uh, the Netherlands and now cannabis in Uruguay. My, that's my own view. My own view is that we should regulate any drug that is less harmful to the user than alcohol should be available in a regulated market, in a pharmacy probably with a smart card. I, that's what I think, but I think that that's a, that takes a huge amount of 
faith and, and, and common sense. I think the first step should be decriminalization because we know decriminalization works. So here's an example. Portugal, for economic reasons, decriminalized possession of all drugs 15 years ago because their prisons were just full and they, were, they had rising rates of AIDS. So they switched drugs from crime to health. In those 15 years, heroin deaths in Portugal have fallen to one-third of what they were 15 years ago. At the same time, we've continued to prosecute heroin users and our deaths have increased by a third. So we know decriminalization works. Right. Um, <clears throat> given the, the power of the alcohol industry and the lobby, associated lobby, um, we've seen this introduction of minimum price in Scotland. Yes. Do you, is, do you see that going anywhere or is it a stunt? Or, or? No, minimum pro well, the reason the Scots have brought in minimum pricing is the Scots have the highest health burden of alcohol-related disease in any Western country. They don't drink as much as some countries. I mean, Russia has, Russians drink more, but they drink so much they don't even live long enough to get ill, they just die. <laughs> no, seriously, seriously. Life expectancy in Russia has gone down since the Second World War. Well, in, every, in Western Europe, it's gone up by eight years for men. In Russia, it's gone down by three years because of alcohol consumption. But Scotland has the highest binge drinking, the highest cirrhosis rates in Europe. 40% of all Scottish intensive care beds are occupied by people who have got an alcohol-related illness. Minimum pricing in Scotland, 50 pence a unit minimum pricing, will reduce consumption by only 10%. But it'll, because of the, these curved relationships I showed you between consumption and harm, a 10% reduction at the high end gives you something like a 50% a reduction in health harms. So that's why they're doing it. And they've estimated it will save 400 deaths a year, almost immediately. And we should do the same. And the reason we should do the same is that none of you here would even countenance drinking alcohol at less than 50 pence a unit. I mean, I bet most of you are drinking alcohol at least 75 pence a unit. The people who drink cheap alcohol are the young and alcoholics. And they're the ones who are most vulnerable. So if you reduce that consumption, you're going to reduce harm. One more? <laughs> What do you think the main reason is for the newspapers that lobby so heavily against, you know, again? They're all drunks. Well, it's not the street of... I mean, you've got... I mean, it's Fleet Street. It's just called the street of shame for no reason. I mean, they're all... You know, alcohol is consumed by journalists in Fleet Street at a level that is... Which is why most of them don't make it to 60. And they're fed alcohol by the alcohol industry. So this is so the minimum pricing argument. Trying to get a newspaper in Britain to tell the truth about minimum pricing is impossible. Because if you talk about minimum pricing, the son says, nanny state, the male says, nanny state, nanny state. The only place I could get to publish a piece I wanted, where I did an economic analysis of minimum pricing, was The Spectator. And if you, if you do the economic analysis, you, as some of you, who, who are taxpayers here? So you're paying at least £1,000 a year of your taxes are going to support the drinks industry, the way it sells alcohol today. At least a thousand pounds of your taxes. Minimum pricing wouldn't affect you because you're not drinking cheap alcohol, but it would reduce health costs and reduce policing costs. So you'd save, you'd actually save 150 pounds a year from your tax budget on alcohol. But you cannot get that in the mainstream media because the drinks industry lobby. So I'm going to finish on this point because this is a paper I'm, we're going to put out fairly soon. If you follow me on Twitter, you'll see when it comes out. It'll come out in about three weeks. We had the remarkable opportunity of watching Diageo lobby in Westminster. 
one of my research fellows got snuck in. And he got snuck in to this party, which was going on in about the end of November. And this was a remarkable party, because the guy who snuck him in said, look, it's out here on the balcony overlooking the Thames. This is Diageo's free party. <laughs> he went there and he said, I saw ministers, I saw shadow ministers getting drunk with the editors of The Mirror and The Sun and The Mail. And they were all getting drunk from four o'clock in the afternoon. It was a free bar. He said, I saw one shadow minister come in with five of his assistants. And he drank five pints of beer between five and six and then went to vote. And the guy said, he said, well, I presumed, he said to his mate, he said, I presume this is the Christmas party. And he said, no, they do it every fortnight. Every fortnight in Parliament, there is a free Diageo party. They all get swilled together. They've all got their noses in the trough, the journalists and the politicians. It's outrageous. And that's why you cannot get a reasoned debate about the harms of alcohol in this country. So maybe that's a good point to finish. Thank you.